The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... We have to make the outdoors of India as good as our indoors. That's the real challenge. We explore the unique challenges faced by what is now the most populous country on Earth, India, as the nation continues its swift march towards an increasingly urban future. And we catch up with a UK-based developer who is leaning into the world of mass timber construction to ensure that projects continue to benefit both the metropolis and the environment too. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today's show in India, the most populous country in the world, and one that is urbanising fast. Naresh Narasimhan is a managing partner at Bangalore's VA, a multidisciplinary, award-winning Indian architecture firm. He also runs the MOD Institute, a think tank aiming to address urban design issues. Naresh has been a practising architect for almost 40 years, and as the beginning of his career coincided with the economic liberalisation of India, his work has been focused around the modernization and urbanization of the country. And I'm happy to say that Naresh joins me now from Bangalore. Naresh, thank you for speaking to us today on The Urbanist. Now, you work in a country that's just recently landed a spacecraft on the moon, but it still has many challenges when it comes to urbanization. Can you tell us about some of those and what we can do about them? One of the things that is changing the face of India is that about 70% of India of this population used to live in the villages. About 30% lived in, in about 650-odd towns and cities in India. The rest of them are all in the rural areas. There has been a giant migrationary move, particularly in the last 20 years, 25 years, from people from the hinterland coming into the cities to such an extent that very few little time from now, maybe 10-15 years, the number of people in urban areas will become equal to the number of people in the rural areas. That is effectively from about 300-odd million people right now, it will go to about 600 to 650 million people living in urban areas. Our cities are completely not designed to handle this at all. My own city, which is known all over the world, which is officially now called Bengaluru, but everybody knows it in the world as Bangalore, has doubled in population in the last 15-16 years from a city of six and a half million, we are now close to 13 million people. The six and a half million people itself took a little longer. It took about 
20 years to hit that point, but the rest of it has been alarmingly fast. What is really the issue is that our cities, they usually are agglomerations of multiple villages. Many of them start off with a very small town growing in bigger and bigger and bigger. And unfortunately, they have not had a planning infrastructure, both from the government or from the private sector, to be able to cope with something like this level of dramatic change. So what can a city do in those circumstances to deliver an urban future that's promising and deliver some quality of life for the people coming to the city? Are many of these people ending up in informal housing initially? Can the city extend sewers and electricity at the pace at which some of these cities are growing? Not really. There's a huge pressure on financing and also there is a lot of systemic issues because most of our public infrastructure in India is controlled by parastatal agencies which do not have direct political representation and most of them work in silos and their data is also sitting in silos. I mean, I can give you a litany of issues why it's not working. But let's talk about what can make it work. To that extent, I would say that it needs to start by redefining, particularly for India, what is infrastructure itself? We use the word casually, the infrastructure is required to run a city, but what is it? Does it include the environment? Does it encompass sustainability? Do you understand the root of the economy generation mechanism? How does it work? Could include heritage, it include Obviously, the most important is, I would feel, is the quality of life, which is not considered. Most of these infrastructure initiatives in India are driven by engineering-oriented firms and engineering thinking, which attempts to solve a technical problem by engineering it out of the way. But really, all of them, if you ask me, lack an imagination that without people my fav- one of my favorite lines is we don't bring the public into public infrastructure and you treat them as a item of consumption to be sucked into infrastructure and chucked out at the other end. The quality of the cities are starting to go down dramatically. India has hit a point where my own firm, for instance, has built buildings in India on a scale of 1 to 10 compared to a, I mean, a building in your country, perhaps. We have hit a benchmark of almost 9.5. And when it comes to the interior design of a building, we have now surpassed what the other countries can do, and we can do a 12 on 10. But the unfortunate part in India is that you step out of your boundary of your property into the street, your feet go straight into a ditch with running sewage. The quality difference between the inside and outside is extraordinarily dramatic. One of my passions these days for the past 10 years is that We have to make the outdoors of India as good as our indoors. That's the real challenge. And to make it in a humane, inclusive, sustainable, green, whatever labels you want to put to it, but all of the above based on clearly defined metrics, which are lacking in most Indian urban situations today. Now, on your website for the MOD, so mod.org.in, there's a wonderful film about the K100 Citizens Waterway, a little documentary, which raises this very point, putting the public into public infrastructure. And the film explains that perhaps in India, there's a, a critical need to make sure that people have some ownership of what happens on the street, as you say, not just in their homes. Because if you're going to clean up waterways, if you're going to make the city more equitable, 
then you need people to play their part in it, not throwing rubbish into streams, not allowing sewage to run into fresh water. How difficult is that? How can you begin that process? I've seen many big cities in the world, and it's a question of culture. You know, in India, we somehow, as a nation, as a culture, we don't think that the commons belongs to us. We think the commons belongs to some fuzzy government entity. And I mean, to use a oft-repeated phrase, it's the tragedy of the commons. That is the problem I'm trying to solve. It's not just a design problem or an engineering problem. It's also a social, behavioral design problem. In India, the provision of infrastructure has been one of anxiety to perform and cut a lot of important steps along the way and completely exclude people from the planning process, which I feel is the wrong thing to do. Coming specifically to the uh, to the K-100 stormwater drain project. Stormwater drains in Bangalore. See, Bangalore is a strange city for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's the largest city in the world, not next to a natural feature. There is no river, there is no sea, there is no mountain. Actually, there's no reason why Bangalore should exist at all. And Bangalore is not a new place. We just celebrated our 486th birthday. It was founded in 1537 as a town. It was never a village. And what has happened is that the whole city was conceived, surrounded by a big series of overflowing lakes, man-made tanks, as we call them, which overflow one into each other. And the channels between these large bodies of water, which were the shallow areas, were called the Raja Kalaways or the King Canals, which connected all these things. And over time, people in the city have lost touch with their water heritage. Earlier, it used to be protected because that's the only place where you could get water. But over time, that has been lost. The K-100 is the oldest drain in Bangalore. And it travels for about 12 kilometers from the heart of the city to one of the large water bodies on the outskirts called Belandur, where till last year, since till we started the project, used to catch fire on a regular basis. So if you've ever seen a lake on fire, it's an unusual sight. And it used to be fully polluted with effluents, oil, detergent, foam, and so on and so forth. So nobody was able to solve the problem. And we identified the problem as not the lake, but the drains which brought the water to the lake. And we did a lot of homework on it, surveyed it with uh, brand new technology, which all using LIDAR drones and whatnot, and also went into the historical mapping logic of what was it, how was it, also looked at the people who live on the drain. This is really the armpit of the city where the poorest of the poor people live. It's a stinking mess, the whole area. And Bangalore has about 800 plus kilometers of these drains. And we just took an 11 kilometer stretch and said, let's try using this fundamental principle, saying that if you bring the public into it, you see, in India, nobody throws garbage in an airport. Nobody throws garbage in a railway station. Nobody soils a well-kept public place. So we said that, why can't this be a well-kept? Why can't we reclaim it from an eyesore into an urban asset? And the government uh, was very, very supportive, as well as the regulatory agencies around it was very supportive. And we came up with a four or five design principles saying that put a pathway inside the drain because it rains only 60 days a year, 300 and odd days a year. People should be able to create a walking path without any vehicles in it for almost 10 kilometers, 8 to 10 kilometers of walking path on both sides of the drain sometimes. You know, one of the fun things to do in a city is actually people watching. You know, how a city is designed can bring strangers together. It can hold a community together. You know, when you think of infrastructure 
from the perspective of the citizen and the user and not merely logistics and functionality, the whole game changes. And then it becomes a asset which people will then look after and not spoil anymore. You're describing something where you can't pursue absolute perfection. You have to work with what you've got. You've got to be adaptive. You've got to be responsive to the people and the situations. Do you ever feel a bit overwhelmed by the amount of work that has to be done in Indian urbanism? You sound quite positive about it. Or do you see it more as, okay, let's just come up with some ideas. Let's get started. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the whole thing, you'll probably give up and sit down again. But, uh, <laughs> but, but look at it this way. It is not that people don't want to change or people don't want a better quality of life or whether it be the politicians or the bureaucrats or the people or whoever it is. The stormwater drain belongs to the city municipal corporation and it's supposed to carry stormwater. But the sewage department has not done its job. And illegal sewage, they should be taking it away in pipes somewhere. It comes into this drain. The drain itself leads to a lake which belongs to something called the minor irrigation department. And a lot of fractured jurisdiction along the thing for other services also. So what happens is in the end, nobody owns it. So what we try to do now is to bring all these agencies into one room. And this requires a political will. For one of our senior chief ministers, the former chief minister of our state, he saw the merit in what I was saying and he said, I'll do it and made sure that a group came together. And that is the real issue in India. We don't have this culture of even government agencies working together and working in a public-private partnership mode with civil society to be able to deliver these outcomes. As far as I am concerned, I'm doing urban acupuncture and hoping that choosing these strategic points and putting the needles in the right place would eventually create a balloon effect across the city. We've talked about the water, this amazing storm situation, the the drainage. Can you tell us something else that you're working on at the moment that you think illustrates some of the challenges that you face and some of the opportunities you face? See, most of my work is, I mean, for obvious reasons, focused on Bangalore the ability to make Bangalore a more livable place to live in, given its huge amount of energy. It's also a complex city because 65% of the city is now migrants come here in the last 10-15 years. None of them own the city at all. They know nothing about it. They have nothing to do with it. It's just seen as a site of making some money and it's not seen as a site of inhabitation. Yet, they don't own the place. One of the many of the things that I do, and Bangalore, as you know, is an old British cantonment town. And it had a hell of a lot of heritage buildings. So there is a big part of the center of the city which is still in very good shape. So we are working with the government to see how to create a heritage district, a precinct in the center of the city to remind future generations that Bangalore didn't start just day before yesterday. It's an old place. And really speaking, we've almost got like a manifesto on how to redesign public infrastructure. We are also doing multiple food streets across the city. I mean, what we do is We pick about 10 projects, create a story around them and socialize it among all the possible stakeholders. And usually a couple of them stick. All of them don't work. But that's the whole point of also doing a pro bono initiative for the city. So what we feel that is that the reframing of public infrastructure as the foundation of civic life and not as a logistical afterthought is the fundamental reframe required. This will create a sense of social cohesion and inclusion and enhance the public realm. Accessibility and equity to this realm must be completely open. 
right now india is a country of compounds and you know gated communities it's almost a rejection of the city and we want to change that way of thinking and of course with a very very strong environmental sustainability logic built into it go from a gray infrastructure to a green infrastructure build in the climate resilience and adaptability into the project itself when you do all this a new cultural identity what this drain is going to do is that we also have decentralized sewage treatment plant upstream and it's going to create a new if i may dare say a new river for bangalore itself and a river in a city or a probably more a canal is a it will instantly create a sense of public involvement people like walking next to flowing water and when you do all these things it creates an economic catalyst and what has happened in this particular drain project is about 70% complete in less than 2 years property values have doubled it's interesting when you speak to architects and urbanists you know you're working in a, in a very particular context do you look outside the country for inspiration do you look to other fast developing countries in asia for ideas do you look to europe to the us for ideas where does the inspiration come for for indian urbanism or do you think it's a very homegrown contained discipline at this time no one's an island anymore but what if fundamentally i have changed my thinking from say 20 years ago is that we used to look at europe and we used to look at america and see that you know well, what have you guys done we look at amsterdam we look at london but what has happened is i think we have become prisoners of longitude and you know this whole framing of the debate as you know the west versus the east and I mean, who is the west to frame us as the east I mean i would put it the other way around or this debate about global north and global south i think these are all facile arguments what really matters on the globe today is actually latitude cities roughly on the same latitude urban agglomerations on the same latitude and roughly the same elevation the elevation of the city from sea level makes a difference roughly face the same set of issues i mean if you dig a hole in bangalore it comes out somewhere near mexico city right on the other side so roughly you will find mexico city has similar issues in terms of mobility in terms of quality of life in terms of air quality or whatever is the metrics used to define livability in a city trying to frame ourselves against vienna or munich or london is an exercise in futility and the people also are not the same but you will find that latitude as a denominator is a much more democratic and more easy going way to look at other cities in the world so we do a lot of extensive studies of what is going on for the drain project for instance we looked at a fantastic project in manila we looked at a fantastic project in seoul so we look at places with a similar climatology along the same latitude zones and understand how did they approach this issue because the issues are roughly the same in the same latitude across the entire planet if you look at it carefully there are multiple solutions coming out of asia and to a large extent india India is a little more complicated because we are a fairly messy democracy. We can do rocket science, but the urban infrastructure is not. Its problem is it's not rocket science. I think that is the problem. We are very good at putting people on the moon, but we are not able to fix our environmental issues in our cities. So at times it always looks like I've bitten off more than I can chew. But I think that instead of focusing on dramatic change, incremental evolutionary change by starting with advocacy towards 
how do you frame the idea of infrastructure itself how do you create projects which demonstrate in a pilot level at least what could be done to such an extent now that the k100 project has now been uh, noticed by the world bank this problem is there in every indian city this idea of storm water drain getting polluted so they're saying that you know why don't we make it a city wide project so sometimes it works naresh narasimhan there thank you for joining me on the urbanist from a country that is building fast to a method of building that is fast picking up speed mass timber construction is something of a buzzword in the building industry at the moment promising all sorts of benefits for developers planning new projects in a city although initially seen as a novel outlier developers are starting to pay closer attention to the use of timber and the hope is that the planet will reap some of the benefits theo mitchell is the chief operating officer at bywater a property development business focused on sustainable office development. Bywater has been at the forefront of bringing mass timber to the sector, and that is partly due to a recent partnership agreement they signed with leading forestry and property business Sumitomo Forestry. Earlier, Theo joined Monocle's Tom Edwards to discuss the company's work, and Tom began by asking how quickly the conversation about mass timber construction has moved on in recent years. I think from my perspective it is certainly picking up momentum and it is picking up momentum quite rapidly so a little bit of anecdotal feedback that we constantly get from our design team architects engineers and so on is that most clients now are at the very least intrigued by timber and asking that question even if they aren't delivering timber for any number of reasons whereas when we started our journey we certainly felt like a little bit of an oddity a bit of an outlier someone who's exploring the fringes of something new having said that this isn't a new technology even in the UK i think the UK has been lagging behind but interestingly we've been lagging behind in thinking about this as a building material for office buildings but there are plenty of examples of mass timber buildings in the UK they just happen to be schools they happen to be medical centers those sorts of typologies and for whatever reason the step into office buildings hasn't been made until relatively recently let's talk a bit about how this is integrated into the the overall approach of bywater because obviously one of your fundamental priorities is to look at refurbishment reuse to use regenerative technologies and innovations to drive progress how seamlessly does using timber structure, manufacture, how seamlessly does that work with those other reuse and regenerative principles? I think in some respects it does work seamlessly in that one of the inherent benefits of building in timber that is it is relatively lightweight. So in terms of any project that is looking at, and this is almost always the case with any reuse project to make it commercially viable, it is reuse but extend adapt in some shape or form for that extension adaption piece often not always but often timber is a very logical route to go so in that sense it is seamless where i think it is more challenging and we've certainly found that there is a relatively small but growing but currently relatively small expertise pool in the uk market is all the kind of micro detail that sits behind the design the fire strategy how timber relates to dealing with issues of water damp penetration etc the micro detail is pretty complicated so on one level it's a very logical route to go but i can understand why perhaps for some years for some clients it's been a difficult leap to make 
And I wonder, are there solutions to some of those complexities and problems more buy-in from government, regulatory bodies, or is it just about convincing people and that may take a bit of an amount of time? What, what are the, some of the fixes for some of those issues? It's certainly about convincing people. And I think what's quite interesting is to, you know, if you think about mapping out all the people that you need to convince to get a project off the ground, and that that will be different for me and my business compared to others, but typically that's going to involve investors and banks and design team and planners. And, you know, the list goes on and on, and it takes quite a lot to get all of those people on board with what might feel like a courageous decision to go with timber. I guess the other point is, you know, the financial overlay, you're thinking particularly about investors as around risk appetite and getting comfortable with doing something that, however logical, is still perceived as being different, something a little bit new, maybe risky, maybe not. How do I evaluate that? How do I price that? Those are the things I think that have held people up. So I think there have been a number of players, I'm sure, who are sitting on the fence and just haven't quite felt comfortable making that decision because, to your point, there are so many people to convince and, and line up. And they take some convincing. We're very interested in Monocle always about benchmarking and best practice, whatever aspect we're looking at, particularly if it comes to sort of urbanism and development. Do you find it instructive, Theo, to look to particular markets? Because I'm sure we'll have listeners who will say, well, look, I've seen crazy wood framed skyscrapers, you know, insane amounts of stories in certain markets. And there are places where it seems very live, very active and much more progressive generally and joined up is that important do you have to kind of travel the world you have to look at these other markets that that are much more i don't know bolder than the uk we are conscious of the markets and yes there is a sense that the uk is lagging behind unfortunately in some of this i think there are a couple of near-term and very long-term things that play into that the near-term issue of course is grenfell and the legacy of grenfell for combustible materials, timber self-evidently being one of those, although engineered timber performs very, very differently. But high level, I think there is certainly still an implication for Grenfell, not just in terms of residential design, obviously, but in terms of office design as well and the legacy that Grenfell has. And then there's a very long-term historic memory, if you like, which in some ways fascinates me as someone who's always been fascinated by cities. Back to the Great Fire of London, you know, we, we had a culture that pivoted away from timber buildings a very long time ago. And there's that kind of ingrained sense of, of what is normal. And that perhaps certainly for office buildings, thinking about the city of London and so on, that hasn't included timber for a long period of time. So we do spend a lot of time looking elsewhere. There is that sense that we're lagging behind and have to play some catch up. But I think there is an inherent difficulty in translating, you know, look what they can do in the Nordics to the UK because you're just working in a completely different regulatory environment in terms of building regulations, but investment environment and so on. So there, yes, there are learnings, but we need to build our own timber culture again in the UK. Perhaps you could just talk about a couple of your current projects. I know you have a big development in London, in sort of Lambeth area, but also in Smithfield, not that one. The other one, maybe just tell us about a couple of these and how they embody some of the kind of values and priorities that you've already been mentioning. 
Sure. So I mean, if we start with the project in Lambeth, it is in Vauxhall, so central London area, but slightly off the beaten track. I think it's a great example of where, as a property developer, you know, when you're assessing a site like the one we bought, you've got to make a balance between commercial decisions and design decisions. And we knew always with that site, we had to do something slightly different there because it is slightly off the beaten track. And the different thing that we chose was maybe slightly rashly some years ago to pursue a full timber frame office build. That project's now on site. What everyone's been excited about for some years is to see the timber go up. So that's happening from November this year. Again, one of the points about timber, that's going to be a very rapid process, only 16 weeks to put that office building together. And that's a full timber building. You know, what's fascinating about that is that decision to go with a full timber building brings the embodied carbon of that structure down really significantly. So we're ahead of the RIBA 2030 challenge for that building. It's not been easy to achieve that. And what I was talking about earlier in terms of some of the checks and balances throughout the design process, that carbon ambition has constantly been challenged by accommodating particularly fire engineering issues and so on. But we're ending up with a building that beats that 2030 target. That's great. And it's a pleasure to be responsible for one of those projects that are among a peer group that hopefully others can look at, learn from to move our industry forwards. Smithfield, the project you mentioned in central Belfast, is slightly different in character. It's very much a step for us into a kind of regeneration scale of project in that it's multi-building city centre site. We're just in the process at the moment of discussing with the Belfast City Council how we might approach that site in a more comprehensive way and potentially bring in neighbouring sites to deliver a a mixed-use scheme, likely to have a residential part to the core of that, but workspace as well. And one of the things that we've been working hard for a long period of time on that site in particular is, again, a big challenge, I think, for our industry, how you carry local communities with you and, you know, get them to feel that development is being done with them, not to them, and get them to buy into that process of renewal rather than a situation where they feel alienated from what is their city by effectively kind of big capital coming in and, you know, moving away from them. So we've been working really hard at that. So two quite different characters of project, but I think speak to what we're about, not only in terms of the carbon piece, but in terms of a kind of wider social value piece and trying to work in a more sensitive way, perhaps, than our industry has in the past. Theo Mitchell, COO at Bywater there, in conversation with Monocle's Tom Edwards. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Andy Otto with Bangalore Whispers. Thank you for listening, city lovers. 